Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. My guest today is Professor Neil Ferguson, OBE, Vice Dean of the Faculty of Medicine in the School of Public Health at Imperial College. Today, we're going to talk about mathematical models. These are complex equations that are made to try and understand the spread and effects of infections in a population, especially their impact on people and health systems. Rather like weather forecasting, they help us understand what's happening today and what might happen in the future. They are so important that today they underpin the most critical public health decisions that we make, whether we should have lockdowns and the impact of vaccinations. Neil, you have been a very prominent mathematical modeler during the pandemic, but actually for those of us in the field for many decades, I would really be interested to start off in hearing a little bit about what that means. What is a mathematical modeler? Well, first of all, Andy, it's nice to be here and thanks for the invitation. So I would describe myself as a mathematical epidemiologist. We use both statistical models and what come to be known epidemic models to analyse infectious disease data and give insight into the potential impact of control measures and reducing either disease in the population or reducing transmission. And so in common with many epidemiologists, a lot of what we do is, is quite straightforward, simple analysis of, of disease data collected around the world for a wide variety of pathogens to understand trends. So only then when we get that initial understanding, do we start using more sophisticated tools to, for instance, estimate growth rates of, of transmission of a new pathogen or to start you know, analysing trial data to estimate the potential impact, for instance, of a vaccine on, on transmission of disease, and then extrapolate um, to other contexts to inform policy making. So is, is it more about understanding what's already happened or is happening today, or about um, understanding what might happen in the future? I would say 75% of what we do is analysing existing data to better understand how diseases get transmitted in populations, the risk factors for spread, for severe outcomes, basic understanding of the epidemiology of any one pathogen. And then 25% of what we do is taking that understanding uh, to try and apply it to better informing control policies, which you know, governments are applying around the world for a wide range of diseases. Now, over the last few decades, you've worked on Ebola and swine flu and, of course, COVID-19 just in, in, in relatively recent years. And what, what sort of um, information do you need in order to then try and build these uh, models uh, based on mathematical formulas to understand what's going on? So first of all, you need a kind of basic biological understanding of what the pathogen is, how it's being transmitted. Is it respiratory? It sounds as if you've got to have some idea of how the, the pathogen, the virus or the bacteria are spread between people and the rate at which that spread um, is happening, as well as understanding uh, the extent to which people can get infected or reinfected in order to try and build the models to understand the, the spread in a population at a given point in time. Indeed. And, and 
different pathogens vary a lot in that last regard from I mean, diseases like malaria, which I've also worked on a fair bit, where people get repeatedly infected in their lifetimes, albeit with different disease severity, viruses like dengue, where there are four major strains of the virus which can infect you, to diseases like measles, for instance, where most people, the vast majority of people, only ever get infected once in their lives, if at all. And, and so it's a fundamental thing to represent in models. So a lot of what we, we really need to understand for you to build the models is the contacts in the case of, of diseases spread between people, the number of contacts between people, which would be all across different ages. Uh, and of course, the contacts are different in those ages or the contacts with um, a mosquito, if we're talking about malaria and, and looking at the, the potential for transmission. How do we boil all of that down into numbers that you can then um, do mathematics on? So it varies a lot by the type of disease. For diseases like malaria, we work backwards uh, from proportion of people infected at a point in time. That tells us something about transmission intensity because people can get constantly reinfected. Uh, we can work backwards from that to say, you know, what is the risk per day of somebody getting exposed to a malaria-infected mosquito? For diseases which spread from person to person directly, then we use proxies of contact rates. So those are collected in a variety of ways through surveys of how often people come into close contact with each other. Um, and exactly what you mean by close contact will vary by the, by the pathogen. But if we talk about something like COVID or influenza, we'll be interested in how long people spend in, for instance, in, indoors in the close vicinity of somebody else. Um, and the numbers of people, and we can then stratify that data by the age range of both the person being surveyed and the person they're contacting. And it gives us this valuable proxy information for contact. It's not quite the same as contact. We still have to adjust the data, but it, that sort of data has proved invaluable. And now more recently, just in the last five to 10 years, we're getting additional very valuable data on on overall population level contacts through mobile phone data, anonymized mobile phone data. So people may have heard of the Google mobility trend data, which became available during the pandemic, which told us for every local authority area in the country, what proportion of time people were spending in the vicinity of their house versus workplace versus shops. Um, and, and tracked the impact of the social distancing measures put in place during the pandemic really quite accurately. And that data is available for multiple countries of the world. But also, you can, for mobile phones, get data on how people, you know, the, the extent of people's movements from place to place, which is also valuable. These data are not a direct, we never observe transmission of a respiratory pathogen, though. We can never be completely sure except in rare instances that you know, person A infected person B. And so there is a lot of then statistical analysis to calibrate those proxy measures of contact onto the observed transmission patterns we see at this large population level coming out of surveillance systems. So I, I think one thing you've raised there is, is the, the spectre of uncertainty. And clearly we have um, along around lots of the things that you've brought up, some uncertainty, um, even with diseases that we know a lot about. And I wonder how how is that handled in modelling? How do you then, as you're putting all of it together to, to to an output to say something about transmission, how do you handle all of this uncertainty that you'll have in the data? 
So first of all, we, we handle uncertainty by not estimating a kind of single point best guess value of a parameter typically, but you know, characterizing it statistically. So we have, I mean, nowadays in Bayesian terms, it would be called a posterior distribution, but in some sense, a mean estimate and a, a confidence interval, a 95% confidence range on, on an estimate of any one parameter. And we'll have that for most parameters. And then we can use, um, there's a variety of ways we can what's called propagate that uncertainty into model estimates and model projections. One way of doing it is just in some sense sampling, scenario sampling could be called sensitivity analysis, varying parameters systematically in the range of uncertainty to see how much does outcome to outcomes vary as a function of that kind of input uncertainty into the model. And that was very common and still commonly used, very common in the past, but now as computer power has become larger, um, we can use more statistically rigorous Bayesian methods for propagating, you know, truly statistically rigorous way, propagating that uncertainty into uncertainty and projections. And so a lot of the more formal forecasting efforts um, done on COVID, short-term forecasts, use that latter approach. The la last way of accounting for uncertainty is something which is often used in disease forecasting, was in the US and the UK which is to combine results from multiple models, because embedded in any one epidemic model are a whole bunch of what are called structural assumptions. No two modelers will make exactly the same choices about how to build a model. And therefore, if you want to understand the uncertainties generated by those subjective choices, then it's best to sample across a wide range of models. And that's exactly what was done in the UK. And that's why indeed, the government in making, you know, using models to inform decision making always prefers to rely on multiple models, um, the output of multiple models. That, that, that's a, a really important comment. So it means that we need more modelers in order to be able to of do course. more, more modeling. Uh, very good. Um, so I, I guess that, um, that then um, gives you um, a range of um, possible outcomes. And I think you've already mentioned that you can then go back to the data um, and perhaps other data sets to see whether your model actually performs as you think it uh, would. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah, so one of the challenge challenges we have for infectious disease uh, modeling is, particularly in an emergency situation, is that kind of validation of, of projections, certainly longer term projections, in the way which typically might be used for weather forecasting is, is really quite difficult. And we can certainly do it for short term projections. We can look at, you know, what we're projecting two weeks ahead, what were the epidemic trends, which models perform better than others. But often what we use infectious disease models for in a, in a policy sense is to do scenario modeling over a longer time frame. But none of these are formal predictions for the reasons I've stated. So, I mean, work is being done, and a lot of research and effort has been put into finding better ways of validating infectious disease models. But it is important to understand those limitations. What we're, we're not at the stage that weather forecasters are at where we can make reliable projections of really any disease more than a few weeks ahead. And I should just say on that point, even weather forecasts, of course, for fundamental reasons, don't tend to be very reliable for more than two or three weeks ahead because of the, the complexity and nonlinear dynamics intrinsic in, in systems like the weather and that's equally true of epidemics as well i think um we're, we're getting a, a very clear message that what the models are doing 
is helping build a framework to inform how we should think about the future, but they no, aren't necessarily um, going to be absolutely um, on the, the the head of the nail. Yes, we don't we don't have any crystal ball to see exactly what COVID will be doing in four months' time. So I'd, I'd like to come back to COVID in a minute, but first of all, um, just to talk a little bit about influenza, because you've worked extensively on influenza, both epidemics and pandemics. And of course, that did frame a lot of the thinking around COVID-19 when that arrived on our shores in early 2020. Um, so I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the previous influenza pandemics of uh, the last century and how the modelling of those, going back to the data from those pandemics, informed the way we think about respiratory and pathogens. And and and, and I guess particularly going back to 1918, um, which is uh, perhaps was the uh, the blueprint for much of how we were thinking up until 2020. Yeah, so we go all the way back to the SARS epidemic of 2003-04, and then the, the rise of avian flu, H5N1. Both of those things shocked the world, even though they didn't lead to a global pandemic and led to a lot of investment of time and effort in researching and better understanding past pandemics. And so I and colleagues were involved in some of that work, which involved going back to very old historical records of influenza mortality in different countries, indeed different cities, to understand both the dynamics of those the pandemic in different areas of the world, the disease burden, you know, what or how lethal were the pandemics. I also looked at something which hadn't really been looked at before, which was that in particularly in the United States, public health measures, we would call them now non-pharmaceutical interventions or social distancing, were applied in some US cities. And these are not the sort of measures you can test through a randomized clinical trial, typically. So getting an estimate of how effective they are, you have to rely on what was done in the past in emergency situations. And this was a valuable insight all the way back from 1918 in how relatively effective non-pharmaceutical interventions could be. And interestingly enough, what they found, some US cities who saw what was happening on the east coast of the US, where the virus first came into um, the United States in 1918, saw large numbers of people dying and responded in cities in the south, for instance, in the west coast, and, and effectively imposed quite stringent pharmaceutical measures, closing schools, closing bars and restaurants, closing churches. Uh, and they, those measures had an effect. You know, often they reversed transmission, they, they caused the epidemic to start going down again. And then, of course, the pressure came up from the population, um, the economy was being ruined, we need to reopen schools, and so they lifted the measures once, once incidents, once number of cases dropped sufficiently, and then they immediately saw a rebound of transmission. So you have these unique double-peaked epidemics in some US cities from 1918, and that taught us a lot of lessons of which were transferable to COVID. So, so, that, so that 1918 Spanish flu um, pandemic. Many countries didn't do that. Where, where did um, those US cities get the idea to do it? Did, did they have models to help inform that? Indeed not, but they had a very strong public health tradition of using measures like quarantine against things, diseases like cholera, for instance, in the past, to to control the spread of infectious diseases. Um, and, and that's what they applied, um, that strong public health tradition 
Interestingly, of course, in the UK, whilst we also have a strong public health tradition, it's been less focused historically on using those sort of quarantine type measures, particularly at the population level. And no such actions were taken in, in the UK. In fact, what the UK government did was largely censor the press from reporting the true scale of mortality in the pandemic, because we had a war on, and, and carry, you know, carried on, as it were. So uh, w- when did, I mean, you, you mentioned your work sort of 20 years or so ago in this area um, on trying to evaluate um, the actions taken in 1918 to, to inform thinking uh, for the modern day. But when did models really start to, to be used in, in public health decision making? I mean, I mean if, if, we, if we look today in, in decisions around pandemics around even routine vaccine policy, they very heavily rely on mathematical models to try and make good decisions. So when, when did that really start coming in into to the mainstream? So I think it's been a gradual process. I mean, one of the things which attracted me about moving into the area, and I'm talking about all the way back in 1995, because I, I started as a physicist um, and moved into epidemiology infectious diseases, was the fact that all the way back in, in 1995, modeling had started you know, there was started to be an uptake of modeling to inform disease policy planning i mean all the way from the first project i worked on was um you know extending mmr coverage uh, in the uk and from there it developed gradually initially being more applied to the control of of endemic diseases we call them diseases which circulate all the time to inform things like vaccination policy planning but then really from about 2001 onwards um being applied in real time in outbreak situations and i and a number of groups in the uk um were involved in for instance real time modeling of the foot and mouth disease outbreak in british livestock that year and it's been a continuous ask it's also been partly the development of computer power and statistics we're much better at fitting models to data in in real time now and we can we can do a lot more in a much shorter period of time than was possible 20 years ago even so then in 2020 uh, i guess you had those models established for influenza um looking at i'm sure a range of possibilities about future flu, pan- flu pandemics and uh, how rapidly they'd spread how um, high, highly fatal they were, that you could look at a range of different scenarios for respiratory virus pandemics, focusing on flu, which I think it was top of most people's list. So how did you then, in early 2020, apply that to COVID? Was, was it an easy step just to change the name on the computer program? Not quite, but I mean, yes, there were generic models. And I should say we worked extensively on SARS-1, on MERS coronavirus and other coronavirus before we worked on COVID. So we had plenty of experience in modeling actual coronaviruses and some of the differences and, and similarities. With so, so just to, to clarify, so SARS is a coronavirus that, that emerged about 20 years ago, relatively small number of cases because it was very severe and the cases were isolated and fortunately the spread stopped. MERS is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is another coronavirus that uh, emerged about 10 years ago and spread from camelids. Um, and again, most cases um, were very severe and could be isolated. So the traditional approaches, as you mentioned, around quarantining those individuals has been sufficient to halt outbreaks yes. of, of those viruses. Indeed. So so one of the first fundamental questions we asked back in January 2020 was, 
is that a likely scenario for this new virus? How feasible would it be for the Chinese government to be able to contain this new outbreak? And which is why the very first analysis we did was to try and get a better handle on truly what the size of the outbreak was in, in Wuhan. Because if an outbreak is small, it's much easier to contain than if it's large. And, and the warning sign, warning bell for me that we were dealing with something quite different from the original SARS was the detection of cases in other countries. Because we had in quick succession detected two cases in, in Thailand and one case in Japan. Whilst, of course, you know, people travel every day between uh, Wuhan and, and um, in normal circumstances and other areas of the world, still it was statistically unlikely for three cases to be exported from Wuhan unless the outbreak was really quite large in that city. And you can, of course, formalize that. And we came up with estimates indicating that there must be thousands of cases, and this is talking about 17th of January 2020, thousands of cases in Wuhan by that stage. And that is a much different situation already from what we've been seeing with those other two viruses you talked about, and made it much more likely that it would be very hard to contain. Um, and therefore, a global pandemic was, was likely to ensue. But it really, from then, still took a few more weeks for at least um, for global leaders for the penny to drop that um, things were really moving rapidly. What what was it that uh, what features really convinced people that the modelling data that you were starting to develop um, was actually going to turn into the the reality of your crystal ball? Well, I would step back a little and say that I mean, just because we have a new virus doesn't necessarily mean the world has to panic. I mean, the critical to understand in those early days of any new emerging infection is what public health threat does it pose? And so understanding the severity of um, a new fat pathogen, the severity of disease it causes is critical. And you, the challenge with doing that is that just because a new disease causes people to end up in hospital and indeed some people to die, doesn't necessarily mean the, the whole epidemic which might ensue is going to kill large numbers of people. You need to be able to put the numbers of people you see in hospital in context against all the people who are not hospitalized, who have much milder disease or maybe no symptoms at all. That was probably the single most difficult calculation we did in the early stages of the pandemic is get a reliable estimate of this quantity, which is called the infection fatality ratio. What proportion of people infected with a virus can you expect to unfortunately then die from that infection? And we came up with an early estimate with a lot of uncertainty around it from, from uh, pulling together a wide range of data sources of what was going on in Wuhan of about 0.6% for China. Because we already knew this virus, principally the people dying were elderly, it meant in older populations like the UK compared with China, uh, that would be a little bit higher, more like 0.9%. And so that was what caused you know, I and, and quite a lot of people to be really quite concerned. As to what, you know, then is that sufficient data to cause, you know, governments to respond? I think it's a combination of things. For one thing, having confirmation of those estimates through other groups coming up with similar estimates is important. But also, I think the thing which actually stimulated policymaking to a much greater extent was seeing hospitals fill up in northern Italy with very severely ill patients. Yeah. So, uh, so it, whatever happens, you needed some time. And both to gather the data and also for it to be compelling that that was the direction of travel. I, and I guess that 
perhaps in the future is one thing that we need to work out how better to get the estimates earlier and to make decisions quicker. An interesting reflection on on that point uh, was that the early models that you produced um, did suggest very large numbers of deaths here in the UK and was widely quoted in the media as um, something like 500,000 deaths. Now, I, knowing you and we've been listening to you on this podcast, you're quite a measured person. And I, I think it's very likely you would have presented uncertainty around any estimate. So I just wonder if we could just explore where that figure of 500,000 deaths, which um, sort of led to the uh, the notor- notoriety that you have as Professor Lockdown, um, to the extent to which that is exactly what the model said, because I suspect not. Well, interesting, just today in The Times, uh, Tom Whipple um, published a retrospective look back at that famous press conference on 16th of March. And The Times actually led on a different figure the next day, because the 500,000 figure was not the figure I particularly emphasised. I emphasised uh, a figure of about 260,000. The 500,000 figure was what's called a kind of counterfactual of if we did absolutely nothing to try and, you know, the population just carried on as normal, the government did nothing. How many people might we expect to die? And uh, we stated very clearly that in both in in the report nine and I did in media interviews that this was an unlikely figure, but it was important to give a sense of the scale of the potential threat. Um, The kind of mitigation, um, flattening the curve, as it used to be called, um, without you know, going for full suppression measures of trying to reduce transmission, so the R number went below one, um, to just flatten the curve, we felt would not be sufficient to protect the health service was the important thing. Um, and we looked at quite a wide range of, you know, levels of, of transmissibility of different policy options. And under all of those wide range of options, and frankly, varying even severity by two or threefold in each direction. Still, the conclusion was that if we just go for limited social distance measures to flatten the curve, that we would be faced with overwhelming healthcare demand. So, I, I mean, it's it's interesting the figure that you gave of perhaps two hundred sixty thousand as the more likely um, estimate, and and I think that that sort of reflects the 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 need or at least the outputs from the models always give a range and, and then a, 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 a sort of a, an expert view on what the most likely estimate is. Um, but some of the, the estimates today now where we can look back at the pandemic um, have suggested that maybe the mortality here in the UK has been around 200,000 people. It's actually not very far off the estimate you came up with. Yeah, but that's a, you've got to be careful about that comparison. I might also say that you know the number of excess deaths in the United States in the first two years was 1.1 million, which is very similar to the 1.1 million we had in Report Nine with mitigation. But reality doesn't didn't match. We never expected it to match, but didn't match what happened. For one thing, we had vaccines within nine months, which wasn't accounted for at all in um, uh, the modelling of Report Nine. And secondly. Uh, the virus evolved. Um, and we had the alpha variant, which was more transmissible and more severe, and then the delta variant, which again, we hadn't accounted for. And, and finally, we of course had on the other side of the, um, so vaccines were plus, variants were negative, but also another plus is we very rapidly got better at treating COVID in hospitals. 
And so you can see that even in the difference between mortality in hospitals in April 2020 and by June, July 2020, it had almost halved your risk of dying. So, so you, you're able to update your models as the data comes in and you've got more idea. And, and of course, uh, as new treatments or vaccines or, or indeed behavior changes over time, you can update the models. Um, is, is that a problem then in communication? Uh, because I, I guess the world is rather used to um, hearing um, sort of a political position and changing that position is seen as failure. So is, is there a difficulty here in communicating the change in the reality that you have in front of you? So I think for the reasons I've stated earlier in this interview, I mean, I think you have to be careful about using the term prediction. Um, what we did in, you know, we had very limited surveillance data on, you know, mid-March uh, 2020 in which to actually do any formal prediction. What we generated was a range of scenarios which were consistent with our understanding of the epidemiology about what might happen in the pandemic under different intervention options. None of them were formal predictions in that sense. We did rapidly move on as surveillance systems got better. We got much more data on numbers of people. You had universal testing hospitals, so we knew how many COVID people, infected people were in hospitals, and then mass community testing. As you get more and more data, you can move closer and closer to making more statistically formal projections, at least for the short term. And So the modelling from that point of view got more and more informed by the data as the pandemic progressed. So with with the the experience of uh, of this pandemic where you uh, perhaps um, the the other thing that that the models have helped to do is to to see where the uncertainty is and where the missing data is that we need are we now in a better position in the way that we collect data that we can manage the next pandemic uh, if it's another respiratory virus um better than we did this time undoubtedly and I wouldn't I think it's not just modelling. There were some basic flaws in surveillance across the world in, in most countries, not all, um, but certainly in the UK, um, that we had very limited testing capacity and we focused it on travellers from certain areas of the world. And whilst we, other researchers in the UK, always highlighted that this would miss most cases, it missed an even higher proportion of cases than we'd anticipated. So what we saw in January and February of 2020, unknown really to any country in Europe, was a growing epidemic across the European continent, first detected by, by Italy. Um, we were still testing people coming from Asia, whilst we should have arguably been testing people coming from you know every other European country. And we didn't set up testing within the healthcare system early enough. And that's not a lesson which depends on models. That's a lesson fundamental. We fundamentally we need to learn in responding to new emerging infectious disease threats, threats from new viruses which are here to be causing an outbreak somewhere in the world and there's a potential risk of spread. We need to have the capacity to put systematic surveillance in place in our country at the earliest possible opportunity. You, you were under uh, enormous pressure um, academically during um, this pandemic, but I suspect in many ways that you've had the same pressures over uh, the last few decades because you've been there advising governments and the World Health Organization with successive outbreaks of infectious diseases. And But what, what was different for you personally about this one in, in terms of the, uh, the pressures uh, that you were under during the pandemic? 
Yes, you're right. I worked in, in in terms of the kind of working 18, 20 hour days, I've done that before, but clearly there's a difference in scale for a, a global lethal pandemic, which has affected the lives of basically every person alive on the planet. Um, and so the magnitude of that in terms of, of uh, scrutiny, in terms of the magnitude of decisions being made by government, which are, I don't want to overestimate, but at least in part being informed by modelling, by Imperial College, by other groups, London School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine, Warwick, and many other universities. Everybody working on it was, you know, very conscious of, of the, the magnitude and, and the consequences of those decisions being made. Um, and of course, um, I probably didn't anticipate in advance of the pandemic quite how politicized some of the science would be. It's been a little bit better here than perhaps in the United States and some other countries, but still it, it did, you know, it started becoming almost part of the culture wars in some, some contexts. And, and of course, huge pressure by the media um, scrutiny. Um, do you think that modeling has come out well um, from the scrutiny that that uh, it has been under in the pandemic. Do you think the public have a better understanding of the role in developing evidence-based policy? I mean, I'm so close to the issue that it's hard, hard to make an objective judgment. And I think you would, you would get different answers if you ask from 50 people. Uh, uh, I think certainly this, the science media uh, science journalists across the country and indeed across the world have done a really remarkably good job at explaining the science, including explaining the modelling and its limitations and, and value. I think policymakers have a better understanding of what modelling can and can't do. There has been a tendency in the past to almost view it as a substitute for data rather than giving value, added value to data. And I think that's clearer now. Um, I know that some people have argued there was too much dependence on modelling. You're unsurprised to learn that I reject that criticism. But um, also, you've got to ask the question, if you don't use models, what are you going to make these decisions based on, um, particularly as, as time progresses? And if you look across the world, certainly look across Europe, you know, in many countries, European countries didn't have the you know, 10, 15 different modelling groups based in universities advising on policy we had in the UK, nearly all of them made use of mathematical modelling and statistical analysis of, of trends in real time to as one input into policy making. And I should emphasise it's just one input into policy making. And were your models and, and the modelling you were doing feeding into decisions in other countries um, as well as here in the UK, and I'm, I'm sure at WHO, the World Health Organization as well. Yes, to the extent we could manage. And of course, and we, despite being quite a large centre, we had li very limited, you know, our bandwidth was, was saturated, but we did support a number of other European countries at various stages and other countries of the world. Um, we rapidly moved towards in um, from March onwards to focusing that support on low and middle income countries where there was less internal technical capacities to do the sort of things we did to inform decision making. And then later, most of the emphasis was on helping um, in global organisations like the World Health Organisation, like Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, like um, uh, CEPI, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, um, help them refine their plans for, for instance, things like vaccine rollout using the models we've generated. 
So uh, clearly the, the the models have been critical in helping inform in the most recent pandemics how um, governments should behave, the likely impact to vaccines, and indeed time the timing of when society can open up. And I think you've nicely highlighted the the uncertainties that there are, but at least the models give us a bit of a framework for thinking about how to put these in place. When we look at other diseases that you've worked on, which are spread in a different way, is there a fundamental difference in in what you're doing in modelling? So if we take Ebola, for example, the the outbreak in West Africa starting in 2013 and peaking in 2014, uh, where the spread there rather than the respiratory route is contact with body fluids. Is, is there something fundamentally different about what you do to help predict how to manage those and the role of vaccines versus traditional public health measures? I wouldn't say there's fundamental differences, but the difference in biology is, and, and difference in setting is very important to how you construct those models and what sort of interventions you're looking at. So the focus for, and we've done a lot of work uh, with country partners and with uh, the World Health Organization on, on Ebola outbreaks in multiple countries now. And the focus very much there is on identifying cases in the community as quickly as possible and isolating them because it's only very sick people who are highly infectious. And the real challenges for handling Ebola is, is because it's such a lethal disease, um, you need very high what's called you know, infection control procedures to prevent healthcare workers getting infected. And that has a huge resource implications in terms of the numbers of both personal protective equipment, but the numbers of healthcare workers you need to manage and treat even a handful of cases. And so often the challenge in dealing with Ebola outbreaks is not that we don't know how to do it, we're very effective at controlling them, is, is getting ahead of the curve, identifying cases fast enough, you know, putting hospital beds with sufficient infection control fast enough to allow you to drive down transmission. Now, with the added value that we have vaccines available, which can be used in what's called a ring vaccination around cases, around the social contacts of cases, but all of this is still very personnel intensive. And it's been unfortunate that you know, outbreaks have occurred in some of the poorest communities in the world and communities also affected by um disturbance and, and, uh, and the you know a lack of government structures in place and so our, our role has been really in in analyzing that data to say how fast is the outbreak spreading what are the resource implications needed in terms of beds which will need to be put in place how much better do we need to get it faster to get identifying cases and isolating them to get on top of this and nowadays you know how many doses of vaccine might be needed and what will the likely effectiveness of that vaccine be and I, I suppose that's uh, similar, uh, thinking about the framework around dengue, which is spread by uh, mosquitoes or other um, uh, insect spread diseases. You've also got to have a different sort of model or are there some other fundamental differences there that you need to think about? I mean, there there are differences. I mean, more so than, say, COVID, certainly, that with vector-borne diseases, mosquito-borne infections, malaria, dengue are good examples. There's enormous variability from place to place even within a single country, in, in how effectively those diseases are transmitted, what we call transmission intensity or force of infection. And that has big implications for how effective controls would be. 
historically dengue has been i mean the standard intervention is spraying insecticide to kill mosquitoes it's actually been remarkably un ineffective in most contexts of the world now we're getting more effective interventions becoming available candidate vaccines better ways of controlling mosquito populations but still one of the challenges is knowing how you know how what level of vaccine coverage do you need and what will that likely achieve in reductions in disease and transmission how you know what level of intensity of of mosquito control do you need to achieve a certain level of reduction so the questions are somewhat there but the the fundamental techniques we use the uh, statistical and mathematical models are quite similar we're just asking different questions of them uh, Neil, as, as we've discussed, uh, modelling has the most uh, enormous implications for policy all around the world. Um, and you got into modelling as a physicist. And I, I'm just uh, fascinated to understand whether that was because of the mathematics of the modelling um, that you do, or was it an interest in the biology? Well, how did you get into it? And does that mean all modellers are mathematicians? Um, or are there people who come from other disciplines, for particularly about people who might be interested in this area of science to move into in their careers? So to answer the second question first, I mean, nowadays we have we recruit from a huge range of disciplines. I mean, still we recruit some physicists and mathematicians, engineers, computer scientists, but actually probably most of the people who come into infectious disease epidemiology and even modelling uh, come from a biological um, uh degree backgrounds typically I mean it's a postgraduate discipline um and then learn the modeling and the statistics they need to uh, progress as for myself um I was doing a PhD in Oxford in 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 theoretical physics in a rather abstruse area of string theory and whilst I enjoyed the kind of cha intellectual challenge of that over the course of doing that PhD I realized that I did actually want to be doing something a little bit more applied um which might potentially have a uh, an impact in my lifetime um and it was slight accidental chance that it ended up being infectious disease modeling rather than goodness knows engineering or something um and that was down to two things I saw a talk by a you know, very eminent unfortunately not no longer with us eminent scientist called um Robert May who went on to be government chief scientist talking about the use of model mathematical modeling to model the the HIV epidemic both dynamics of the virus attacking the immune system within people and also then the impact of the what we then call the AIDS epidemic on on population growth and demography in the worst affected area of the world namely sub-saharan Africa and that really had a big impact on me and just I had not prior to that really even thought about you know how how mathematics could be applied to thinking about infectious diseases and epidemics and then the second thing was just uh, the brother of a close friend of mine was dying of AIDS at the time um who's a doctor himself and uh, I remember talking to him some detail about some of the groundbreaking at that time papers on the new protease inhibitors which were being published uh, so these are treatments for HIV these are treatments for HIV and unfortunately that was only 
three, four years before what we now call triple combination therapy revolutionized the treatment of, of HIV. He unfortunately died just before those treatments became available. But that had a personal impact on me. And it also reading those papers made me again aware that maybe the skills I've been rarefying, let's say, in theoretical physics had a more practical application. So um, it, it, it sounds, um, uh, Neil, if, if there's definitely a geeky side to you that likes the, the mathematics of this, but also you're keen to ap apply those in, in ways um, in which it can have um, impact on, on human health. Um, so what, what do you do in your spare time? Is, is it a geeky spare time or uh, do you do other things? I'm tempted to say, what do you mean spare time? Yeah. <laughs> uh. I mean, I'm trying to get fit again. I was very fit before the pandemic, and then obviously um, uh, that got in the way, and we all, all were working. I know you were as well, Andy, very long hours. Um, yeah, I enjoy yeah, theatre, reading, Netflix. Um, probably if I was to pick one thing, I mean, if I can, is hill walking more than anything else and getting out into the countryside. Very good. Uh, getting away from it all, that sounds um, ideal. So if, if you weren't a modeler, um, modeling infectious diseases of humans and um, helping with your mathematical crystal, crystal ball um, inform our futures, what would you be doing instead? I mean, I do actually think I'm still quite geeky and I do think the there has been a revolution in what's now called data science. And I don't just mean large language models and chat GPT, but it is a very exciting area overall, looking at what's going on in that space of, of the new machine learning inspired methods, but also, you know, revolutions in more traditional Bayesian analysis. And so I try to keep up with that literature and I apply some of those methods some of the time, but I could quite imagine a parallel career where I am, I'm full, you know, fully blown geeky in that field. And I think we'll see, we're clearly seeing right now, and it's a different sort of impact. It's not an impact in the health space, but we're seeing huge impacts from those technologies every day. Professor Neil Ferguson, physicist, epidemiologist, mathematical modeler extraordinaire and geek. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Nice to talk, Andy. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Join us next time for more on the facts, stories, and people behind the science.